week we were blessed to celebrate Easter, and for those of you that may not have been here, it's interesting the way the readings have worked out, because uh, the beginning of the gospel for today was the end of the gospel that I chose for last week, because what we had done over the last few weeks during Lent and Easter, we had done a sermon series on the gospel according to John. Today, we have returned to the lectionary where we normally get the readings during the year, uh, and including the gospel readings. And as it turns out, in the preaching schedule, I was scheduled to preach today when we talked about it, Steve and I, and worked out the preaching schedule. And as it turns out, it's a gospel reading from John's gospel. It's a bonus. So I get to preach again from John's gospel. And so it's a follow-up from Easter Sunday. And it's interesting because... Again, going back to Easter Sunday, just briefly, particularly for those of you that weren't here, might be visiting this Sunday. Easter Sunday morning, we often forget that as much as we celebrate Easter on that first Easter Sunday, they were still locked in the upper room. The apostles were. And they still did not know that Jesus had risen from the dead. Because it wasn't until the evening, as we're told in the gospel reading for today, that they actually saw the risen Lord Jesus. And as much as they had had reports from Peter and John that the tomb was empty, and John tells us that he believed, but they were still locked in the upper room. And Mary Magdalene, who was still weeping at the tomb, even though she saw the tomb was empty and did see the risen Lord Jesus had come back, they were still locked in the upper room. And as much as two disciples from Emmaus saw the risen Lord Jesus and came back to the upper room. They were still unconvinced, still, as it says in the scripture, locked in the upper room for fear of the Jews. They were still unconvinced. And it wasn't until Jesus showed up that they were convinced that he was risen. Even though he had told them several times during his ministry that he must die. And that he would rise again from the dead. They were still not convinced. Even with the empty tomb, they were not convinced. And so they were beleaguered and Jesus shows up. And he says, peace be with you, not once, but twice. And then he showed them his hands and showed them his side. And then he gives them the breath of the Holy Spirit, which is a down payment for Pentecost when they would experience the power of the Holy Spirit. And their lives are beginning to be transformed by seeing the risen Lord Jesus. And then he reminds them that their sins are forgiven. They now had experienced the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection, that their sin was vanquished, the power of sin, the power of death. And they were beginning to get their minds around it. And he says that now I'm going to send you out with this message of forgiveness, that you're going to pass this message on to other people because it's about the forgiveness of sin. They experienced that forgiveness. Though they had denied him and deserted him, that he had now come to them and brought them his peace and filled their joy. And he knew their love again. 
his love again restored. So that's the scene. And the scripture that Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin became sin. So that we might know his righteousness became real for them. They understood his forgiveness. They understood now that they were pure, washed by his death, by his blood. And it goes back to Jesus' first sermon that they heard him preach three years ago. The sixth beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now they're beginning to understand. But then there's Thomas. And everybody knows Thomas as, yeah, and that's not right. And the reason is, is because they're all doubting. I mean, think about it. Who wasn't at that point? They were locked in the upper room. It's no different than what Thomas was experiencing. That's why he gets a bad rap. Everybody was doubting. Even though John kind of said he believed, they were still locked. And it's really interesting because Thomas, Thomas was just handling his struggles and his grief differently than the other apostles. And that's really what's going on. And we know how that works in our culture and in our families, that people handle their struggles and their grief differently. They were all gathered together. They were all huddled in that upper room. As much as they were trying to encourage each other, they were probably feeding each other's insecurities and fears and doubts. At least up until the point that they started getting these reports and then saw Jesus. But we don't know why Thomas wasn't there. We're never told. We don't know where he was. But he was aimless. He had no idea what to do. He had no idea where to go. But he was struggling as well, just like the rest of them were. And to say that it was just about doubt is to misunderstand Thomas. Because if you go back just a few chapters in John's Gospel, for example, just go to John 11, when Jesus finally tells the apostles that Lazarus had died and Jesus was going to go there. And he says to the apostles, Thomas does. Thomas says, well, let's go there and die with him. Because if we're going to put ourselves at risk, we might end up dying. Let's go there. Let's go for it. Thomas wasn't shy when they were in the upper room. And Jesus is saying, I must go away. Jesus is addressing their troubled hearts. That's what the beginning of chapter 14 says. And he's saying, I must go away. And the reason he must go away is so he can pay for their sin. And also so he can send the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, I must go away. And Thomas said, well, if you're going to go somewhere, tell us where you're going so we can follow. See, don't misunderstand Thomas. We don't fully comprehend Thomas and where he was and what he was doing 
And the fact that he chose to be apart from the rest of the apostles at that point, but he was clearly struggling. And then when Jesus showed himself to the other ones, you know what Thomas felt? He was already hurting. He was probably more hurt. You know why he was probably more hurt? Why am I the only one? Why am I the only one? Nobody here ever says, why me? I'm sure. But that would be Thomas at this point. Why me? Why am I the only one? You know, I can tell you a time in my life when I was younger, like let's say first grade-ish, plus or minus, I was short, I was chunky, I was starting to wear glasses, and when it came to sports, I was the last one chosen, if I was chosen at all. Oh, I know, yeah. See, now that I'm this strapping man. But back then, I know it's hard to picture. So when you have that feeling, you know what that feeling is. So Thomas is accentuated in his feeling of hurt. He's the first one that the apostles witnessed to, one of their own, one of those who had been around since Jesus had his public ministry, one of the twelve. And he's feeling that left out. And so the first person they witnessed to is Thomas. And he says, the only way that I'm going to believe. If I have that same experience, only I even put my fingers through those holes and my hand in that hole. That's not just doubt, that's hurt. See, and Jesus knows that. See, what we sometimes forget is Jesus knows our hearts. I, I don't know why it is sometimes we think we can get away with things. We can get away with things with other people sometimes. One of the prayers we used to pray for our children, particularly Daniel, is that we would always find out. God always knows. As our Heavenly Father, our loving Father, He always knows. Jesus knows our hearts. And why we think we can fool God. You know, you just need to go back to the beginning of John and you begin to get a hint of it. When Nathaniel is invited to come meet Jesus. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Jesus says of Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree, which is a colloquialism for I know your heart. I know you're struggling. I know you're wrestling. I know you're praying and you're searching. And that's when Nathaniel is smitten and becomes one of his apostles. And then you go to John 3 and he knows Nicodemus' heart. And then John 4 and he knows the woman at the well and her heart. And then you go to John 9, the man born blind. And you can just walk through John's gospel and see how he knows people's hearts. And so he knows Thomas's heart. Just like he knows our hearts. And he knows what we need. And so he doesn't come into that upper room that next week. And Thomas had to wait a whole week. Sometimes that doesn't sound long and sometimes 
That's a painfully long timetable. But he had to wait a week. And now they're all in that upper room again together. And Jesus comes in again. And you know the apostles, I can just think of the apostles. He did it again. Came through those locked doors. So they weren't surprised when he came through. Something about this body's really different though. He's got those wounds in his hands and his side. He can eat, but he can walk through locked doors. This is different. But he does the same thing. He offers peace because especially Thomas needs that peace right now. And he doesn't come in judging him. He merely comes in to address that need in his heart. Thomas, if this is what you need, here you are. Please. Don't doubt. Don't question. Just believe. Because I don't want you doubting. Because you're one of mine. I want you knowing. And Thomas comes out with one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture. My Lord and my God. He is smitten to his heart. He had said to them right after that little dialogue was saying to Thomas, I'm the way, the truth and the life. So just follow me that if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And now Thomas gets it and he falls down on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God, in complete submission, in complete recognition of who this is and what he's done. You know, not long after Bethany was born, nearly 34 years ago, Meredith invited the doctor that delivered Bethany. Meredith and I invited the doctor and his wife over for dinner. And one of the reasons is, is that I wanted to talk to this doctor. I really love this doctor. He was a great guy. But he was a Jehovah's Witness. And I wanted to invite him over to talk with him. I've never been shy. So we had a wonderful dinner together. And then, of course, I said, Lenny, let's talk about your beliefs. So we'd go back and forth a little bit. He did most of the talking, as Jehovah's Witnesses often do. But then I finally got to, the, to this passage. And see, when Jehovah's Witnesses were founded, King James Version of the Bible was the Bible that the founder would have used, which means this passage was still in their Bible. And so I said to Lenny, I said, you know, when Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God, if Jesus was just a good man, just a witness to Jehovah and not God, why did Jesus not correct him? Why did Jesus not say, no, 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 don't misunderstand. That's not who I am. If Jesus was just a good man, just a moral teacher. Because he is 
God. He is the risen Lord. And Lenny said, I don't know. It was a wonderful moment. And he said, I've got to find out. See, that's the key. That's why this statement by Thomas is so powerful. Peter had already said, you are the Messiah. The promised one to deliver us. People down through the scriptures in the Gospels were saying, who is this? The ones who were against him, even. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were questioning. His apostles were trying to figure out exactly who he was. But this statement after the resurrection is the definitive statement. He is the Lord and he is God. And we fall down and worship him. And he becomes the Lord of our lives. We submit to him and he changes our lives forever. When we come to that recognition. When we really understand. He came to forgive our sin. To defeat the power of sin and death on the cross. And come and change our lives forever. And that's what the apostles understood. That's why it was never the same. It doesn't matter what's going on out there. It doesn't matter. It's no longer the issue. It's here. Their lives were changed forever. And that's why John said, this is written. This is written so you might believe. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. And that's why John wrote what he wrote. Because we may not see physically like the apostles did, but that's why Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. So by the eyes of our mind and the eyes of our heart and through reading the gospel, we would see. That's why John wrote that there would be no question that our lives would be transformed forever. And that we would fall down in recognition and he would be our Lord and we would fully submit. You know, John only wrote of a few miracles out of Jesus' life. And only wrote of a few dialogues and focused a lot of his gospel on that upper room experience, which is only a couple, three hours out of his life. By the time John gets to the end of his gospel, at the end of chapter 21, which we haven't read yet, he says, you know, I can't imagine all the books of the world containing everything. Why would he say that? Because he walked with Jesus in the flesh for three years, walked with him by the spirit for they guesstimate about another 60 years. And here he is at the end of his life writing this gospel and saying, I can't imagine writing everything that I've experienced because of this person, Jesus Christ, transforming my life. And you have to remember what books were back then. They were these huge scrolls, not like these peeny things we have today. He said, I can't imagine. 
if he wrote five chapters just on the upper room. Because that's the impact of his life. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That when we experience this transforming power by the cross and the resurrection, we see God in a whole new way. In a way that changes our hearts, changes our lives, and we have a message to bring others of forgiveness and transformation. That peace that he promised, that joy that he promised in the upper room, and the power of his love that changes us, no matter what is going on out there. That's what John is saying here. Blessed are those who have not seen physically, but believe because of the eyes of their heart and the eyes of their mind in the risen Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of the cross and the resurrection. The gift of your son, Jesus, by whose life and death that we are transformed from our sin and our weakness, from our struggle and our brokenness. That we can live that resurrected life. That we can live in the power of your Holy Spirit, the power of the resurrection. No matter what is going on outside. That the locked doors of fear that once held the apostles no longer matter. Lord, let it be so for us. That we would live by your spirit. Live in your peace and in your joy. Walk by your love. And take your message of forgiveness and transformation to those around us, beginning with those we love, just as the apostles reached out to Thomas. And that we would know you as Lord and God. And we pray this in his precious name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.